On this Friday, it's going to be a good one today. It's going to be a good one. We're talking a couple of NASA pilots. we got the great Sal Mercagliano. But before we get there, because we're getting some big topics like Yemen airstrikes and things like that. Supersonic jets, too, which is cool. But, hey, new year, new you, maybe new job. Maybe you're in your old job. You're finally getting support. I'm seeing on LinkedIn people jumping jobs left and right. Maybe you try to staff your warehouse, your brokerage, give a team driver some help, and you've run into a guy like Willie. Roll the tape. Hey, Willie, I was coming to find you. Listen, we finally gonna hire you some help. Well, it's about time. You are the best, best worker up here, and this place probably couldn't stay afloat without you, to be honest with you. So I want to give you the opportunity to decide on who comes in to interview with us, okay? Well, let's hear it. You just tell me yes or no, okay, Willie? All right, first one, we got Caleb. Caleb? <laughs> How old is Caleb? He's 19. 19? I ain't changing diapers every day waiting on that son of balls to drop. <laughs> next. Willie, you don't know anything about him. Well, okay. No Caleb. All right, next we got Terry. How old is Terry? Now, Terry's 47 years old. 47? No, it's only you. You can't tell him nothing. I guarantee I can't stand that son of already. Willie, you right got to give him a he chance. He knows everything. He's going to try to tell me how to do my job. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. I can't stand Terry. Terry's a bit. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. You can't teach him nothing. That's the problem with Terry. Oh, man. We've all met him before. Maybe it's you. Maybe that's your personality. Stephen Rose says, the hell not nah hit the hell not nah hit home for me. I miss working in the trades. What's the perfect, uh, that's the perfect depiction of my old boss. He's the type to send new boots to go find a pipe stretcher. Michael Fitzgerald says, at my age, in response to Willie's seemingly negative attitude, I'll take the high road and not criticize him based solely on his youth and inexperience. Yeah, there's always someone older than you. Willie, you could face that same thing with that attitude. Matthew Leffler sound, says, sounds like a lot of my mechanics can't find the right leader and they wanted nothing to do with managing the shop itself and Hayes McDowell says I knew too many guys just like that now I'm afraid I'm one of them (laughs) aren't we all Hayes all right on episode 669 of what the truck I'm talking to NASA pilots Nils Larson and James Clue less about the agency's new super quiet supersonic jet NASA in collaboration with Lockheed Martin are unveiling the x-59 supersonic jet Today, Friday, and we're going to bring you up to speed on this jet that is set to dampen sonic booms. Global trade is at war. You've probably seen these airstrikes over in Yemen. We talked about the Houthi on these last few episodes. Well, U.S. military forces and the United States, along with support from Australia, Bahrain, Canada, and the Netherlands, have launched strikes against those Houthi targets. So Sal Mercagliano, he's coming on here to talk about the impacts that those are going to be having on global trade. Our first guest, NASA, is already in the bullpen. So here's a video on the X-59 experimental sonic boomless jet, the sonic thump jet to get you up to speed. Hit the tape. NASA is taking a huge leap to address challenges associated with supersonic air travel. One of those is reducing the disruptive sound to people on the ground caused by supersonic flight. NASA's Quest mission is the culmination of decades of research and is centered around a new aircraft called the X-59. NASA has contracted with Lockheed Martin Skunk Works to build a new full-scale X-plane to help solve one of the most persistent challenges, 
the sonic boom. Since 1973, the FAA has banned commercial transportation from flying at supersonic speeds. The ban was in response to the thunderous sound of a sonic boom, caused by shockwaves created when an object travels through the air faster than the speed of sound. The Quest mission has two goals. First, design and build a unique shape that will reduce the loudness of a sonic boom reaching the ground to that of the sound of a closing car door. And second, once built and tested, fly over a number of U.S. communities to gather data on human responses to the sound generated during supersonic flight to find out if the noise is acceptable to the public. Then, hand over the data from communities to federal and international regulators to help establish a noise standard for overland supersonic flight. Researchers understand that there is still a need for the development of full-scale, piloted X-planes to help close gaps in our understanding of aeronautic principles. The team will soon kick off a series of X-59 flight tests that could assist in opening new markets for faster air travel over land. NASA is taking a amazing drop the sound drop the sound because we have these two amazing gentlemen with us here right now one of them goes by the call sign clue I got to figure out what how he got that name it's David Nils Larson James Les they're both NASA test pilots and gentlemen this has to be a huge huge day for you two yes oh, yeah. it is it's very exciting which one's which so David uh David you go first introduce yourself to all of us uh, I'm uh, David Nils Larson. I actually go by my middle name, Nils. Oh, Nils. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So, uh, Nils Larson, it works really well in Scandinavian countries. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I uh, hail originally from West by God, Virginia, uh, although I've been living for in California for uh, most of my life uh, between my career in uh, the Air Force and NASA. Now, now and James, you, James Les, you also, you go by Clue, don't you? How did you get that name? Well, in, in the Air Force, you most pilots get a call sign, and it's either something silly you've done, or they take a look at your name and put something with it. And that's that's what happened to me. It, it could have been much worse. You know, when we first hear, when I first hear about going supersonic and sonic booms and all that thing, my first thought obviously goes to the Concorde. I actually just built a really, really cool Lego Concorde. Um, since people, that's probably the most supersonic jet people know. What, what is it? Let's start there. What's the difference between the X-59 and something like the Concorde that used to fly? Well, the Concorde had a normal loud sonic boom and... Its restriction was that it could only fly over water because, as the uh, the video pointed out, um, supersonic flight over land has been banned for the last 50 years, at least for civilian flight. The military the, and NASA have been allowed to do it. But again, we only do that in very restricted uh, corridors so that we're not bothering yeah. anybody on the ground. Very well, and the X-59 is purpose built to, you know, get rid of that boom and make it into a, a thump. So nope. that's that's probably the the biggest thing that you'll see. Uh, although if you ever look at the two, uh, there there are some similarities between the airplanes. Now, Nils, are so today? Do you gentlemen get to fly this thing? Are we just unveiling it? Have you been inside the plane before? Have you only been inside a simulator? Um, what has been your experience with the X fifty nine so far? Well, uh, so far, I mean, quite, quite, Clue and I've been on this thing forever. Uh, we helped write some of the requirements for the airplane. The uh, Contract was originally let in 2018, 
and then we've been in helping with uh, the designers on the airplane, working with the Lockheed test pilot, uh, Dan Kanan, call signs dog. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we've been in the simulator. I got like 300 hours in the simulator. I think Clue's probably got something pretty similar, uh, helping develop the flight controls, that kind of thing. Uh, the, the event today is kind of just, it's almost like a cotillion for you, the people in the South, you know, the coming out party, you know, introducing the airplane to the public, uh, a little bit more. Uh, and it's kind of the branch between going from production to now we're getting into the ground test phase of the airplane to make sure it's safe to take it airborne. So that's probably the biggest thing that's going on. So we've got a few months of, uh, ground test, uh, before we take that thing airborne, but uh, we've been working on test plans, working on the flight manual, uh, a lot of different stuff over these last few years. But, you know, so it's been a busy time uh, and uh, we did get to sit in it. Uh, I think Clue got to sit in it for the first time about two weeks ago. Um, but uh, it is yeah. kind of cool when you get to sit in it, you know, for yeah. the first time. So I'll let Clue talk about that a little bit. Yeah, Clue, I was looking at your bios. You you and Nils have flown uh, combined nearly 200 aircrafts. You've flown some serious hardware, the kind you see in action movies, the kind you see in Air Force recruiting videos. How does this stack up? Like, how does this compare to what you've already been inside? Well, the most significant thing is that this uh, airplane's never flown before, so we're going to be some of the first pilots to ever fly it. Everything else I've flown was a proven aircraft that... Uh, um, Many people, dozens, hundreds of people had already flown. So it's certainly different to, to fly an X-plane. And there's only a handful of us that will ever get to fly this. So that's pretty special. Now, I'm very curious because my, my, my CEO here, the guy who owns the company, he also has something called Flying Magazine. And the other day I got, a, I got indoctrinated into a lot of flying stuff. And I was reading through the magazine. I was looking on the table. And now I got planes on my mind. So excluding the X-59, because neither of you have flown it, Clue, what is the greatest piece of aircraft you've ever flown before? Uh, everybody always asks that question. And really, it depends on what you're doing at the time. But if I had to give an answer, uh, I flew the F-16 in the Air Force. And for sheer speed, power, maneuverability, you can't really beat the F-16. Is he, is he right, Nils? No, I'm not going to go with that one. Uh, yeah, um, it's kind of well, you know, we always people ask us this, and we like uh, personally, I like to give the test pilot answer is whatever I flew today, but I haven't flown anything today for a favorite airplane. Um, you know, for me, and, and like you said, it depends on the mission you want to do, and they're all fun to fly. You know, for me, the U2 is just amazingly difficult to fly. Uh, you know, that, that was always a challenge. But, you know, the, the Hornet and the Eagle, and to me, the Eagle is the nicest flying airplane out there. You know, you can take her up to Mach 2 plus. So uh, I'm going to go with the Eagle over the Viper. And, you know, I have like 100 hours in the Viper. I think Clue's got like 1,000 plus hours in the Viper. So, you know, I, you know, something like that. So I would, you know, I, it does not surprise me that Clue would go with the Viper. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'll have to one day get myself inside one of those. I, I have some Air Force c connections. My dad, uh, he used to fix B-52s during Vietnam in the Air Force. I'm, I myself didn't go. So thank you, gentlemen, for your service. We're talking Air Force family here. But let's talk a little bit about sonic booms, right? That's the big issue. We're trying to dampen them. Let's start there. What causes a, a sonic boom and what's the issue with them? They've been banned for over 50 years over land travel. Okay, so when an aircraft travels faster than the speed of sound, essentially the, the air can't get out of the way of the aircraft fast enough, 
and it creates a shock wave, kind of like the bow wave on a boat. And this shock wave travels a long ways away from the aircraft all the way to the ground. Even if you're at 50,000 feet where you can't hear the aircraft noise on the ground, you're still going to hear that shock wave, that sonic boom. And it's going to be very loud. It's a it's a small pressure change, but it happens so fast that it vibrates your eardrums and sounds like a boom. And it's also strong enough to vibrate things around you. Um, if you're in a house, any kind of building, the windows will rattle, the ceiling tiles will rattle, it'll set off car alarms outside. Um, so it is very disruptive. You would not want to be living under the path of supersonic aircraft. And something most people don't realize is the sonic boom is not created just when you go supersonic at the moment that you go faster. Anywhere that aircraft is traveling supersonic, it's laying down a sonic boom on the ground below. So it's just yeah, constant stream don't... of like thunder, just just going along yeah. as it flies yeah. along. You're yeah. dragging along. And most people don't realize you've heard a sonic boom, uh, even if you don't live out here where we do it. But, you know, thunder is a sonic boom. So, you know, when you hear that, and if you're close to obviously where the lightning strikes, it's pretty discerning, uh, not just from the lightning that hit the ground. But, uh, you know, for an airplane, you get a, a double boom, you get a boom, boom, because you have the front of the airplane and the back of the airplane. So you have a front and a uh, aft shock. So that's why you get the boom. boom. So. so the speed of sound is about 760, 61 miles an hour, right around there. How fast does this aircraft go, uh, Clue? We're planning to cruise at 1.4 Mach, so that's 40% faster than the speed of sound, um, which, uh, do the math, puts it over about 1,000 miles an hour. So you guys have been, you've, you've flown aircraft that goes that speed, it goes even faster than that. What is the, what is like the feeling when you are going over Mach 1.4, you're, you're hitting such high levels, you're breaking the speed of sound, are you just like sucked into your seat? Not at all. It's it's kind of, you know, I hate to say it, but it's kind of boring. You don't even know that you've gone supersonic. Uh, when, you know, you were in pilot training, sometimes the instructor would be yelling at you in the back of the T-38 because you had gone supersonic. But um, the the biggest thing is that the mock gauge says 1.0 or more. Uh, the other one is as you go through uh, the, you know, Mach 1, you might see the altimeter, if you were staring at it, you might see it kind of swing uh, because the shock wave as it goes across the static port, which is the thing that gives you your, your altitude. So it might, you, you might see that kind of swing a little bit, but it's generally not, you know, something that, that you notice. The biggest thing is, you know, obviously the speed that you're going. So, you know, and anytime you're going faster and faster, you have to think ahead of whatever you're doing, whether you're driving you know, in 15 miles an hour or 80 miles an hour, you know, you have to think further ahead of whatever it is you're, you're in. So the toughest part as you get faster and faster is, you know, you really have to think, you know, pretty, you know, pretty up there when you're doing Mach 1.4, you're doing what, 12 miles a minute, something like that. So, you know, when you need to make the turn up there, you, you got to be uh, ready to, for the turn. Now, am I mistaken in this? I, I thought I read that this particular aircraft doesn't have a windshield. So how, how do you navigate? How do you, how do you fly this thing? So, yeah, if you look at a picture of it, um, the nose is very long. The nose is about 38 feet long out of a 100-foot aircraft. And that's all to make the sonic boom quieter, but it doesn't allow for a forward windshield. 
So instead, we have a camera system. There's a camera on the top and then another one on the bottom, and they feed into an ultra-high-def display that is mounted right in front of us in the cockpit. Hey, there's a picture of it. Perfect timing. <laughs> um, so we essentially have a virtual window to the outside world. We should be able to see exactly what we would see if that nose weren't in the way. Interesting. Now, now Nils, now with, with no winch on something, I, I'm, this is a new aircraft. Obviously, you're doing testing and stuff, safety. What happens if something goes wrong? Can you, can you eject out of this? And what happens when you eject going like Mach like 1.4? Yeah, you can eject. It's got an ejection seat. The The whole airplane was built around the back cockpit of a T-38 and a T-38 ejection seat. Uh, and that kind of is what drove essentially the size of the airplane and a lot of the other stuff that you see when it comes to the airplane. And and that was a cost-saving measure uh, just because we wouldn't have to requalify the ejection seat when it came to, you know, doing sled tests and that kind of thing, which is a lot of money to do that. Uh, you know, the whole airplane is somewhat of a franken jet you know made of different parts from uh different airplanes but and and if you're going it you know your body doesn't care about mach quite as much as it does your indicated speed and up at altitude where we'll be flying the indicated speed is a lot lower so uh if we you know eject up there uh the air the you know ejection seat can handle the entire envelope all the way up to sixty thousand feet which is a little higher than most airplanes like this go you know, all the way out to the max mock of the airplane at about 1.5. So, so Nils, what's the secret sauce here, right? Like, how are we doing this to dampen these sonic booms? What's special about the X-59 in that regard? Well, you know, Kluke kind of pointed it out when he was talking about that big, long nose out there. So, you know, 38-foot nose. If you look at the cockpit, you know, I'm about halfway back, you know, when you're sitting there. You know, the, the view that you have right there doesn't quite do it justice because that's that three-quarter view from behind. But, you know, whenever you have uh, an aircraft and it's going faster than the speed of sound, every time the angle changes on the airplane, you're going to get a shock wave come off there. And so what happens in, a say, an F-15, F-16, you get all those shock waves that come off there, and they're not designed to be quiet uh, for any reason. Uh, so what ends up happening is those shock waves that come off you know, they, they end up coming together a little bit as they move through, you know, the atmosphere. So they kind of reinforce each other. So one of the big things this airplane does is it tries to not have those angles uh, or very often so that the shape of it in that big, long nose, 38 feet, means that, you know, there's a good, you know, amount of distance till you get that next shock coming off the airplane. So they can't kind of come together. So, in the end, that dampens that forward shock a bunch, so you don't get that startling effect. So you're still going to get some noise out of it, but it's not going to be that that sharp firecracker bang that you get. There's some other things. You'll notice that the engine is on the top of the airplane, so that means the shock coming off the inlet is going up instead of down. Uh, there's other weird little things. You'll look at the airplane and go, wait a minute, it's got a stabilator, and it's got a T-tail, and it's got a canard. So you're thinking, well, that, that's a lot of a lot of surfaces, uh, and that's all to control the distribution of the lift or the center of pressure, which is the other thing that kind of leads to, you know, almost if you think about of how and where the airplane is pushing down on the air. Kalu, can you hear a sonic boom when you're the pilot in an aircraft, or do you get to fly in in silent bliss as you just boom everyone on the ground? 
We never hear the sonic boom in the aircraft because, again, it's a it's a shockwave that comes off the aircraft, travels to the ground. You only hear it as a boom when it passes rapidly across your eardrums. So if it doesn't cross your eardrum, eardrums, you don't hear it. And uh, again, we, uh, we're stationary inside. It's probably going to be loud in there just from all the other things going on. The engine's putting out a lot of power, um, but we'll never hear our own shockwave. You never hear your own shockwave. That that is uh that that's pretty um that's cool. Um, so it's an experiment. Well, even when yeah. I was gonna say, even when we will we will fly supersonic chase next to each other. So you know, and we will you know, as we say, surf the wave. So you'll you'll move forward and aft and hit the shockwave coming off the airplane, and it will move you around because it is a pressure change, and it will shove the airplane. If you're underneath, it'll shove it down or up or off to the side, but. Yeah, you don't hear anything, you know, from the other airplane while you're doing that. But, you know, whenever you're out there surfing the shockwaves. Nice. Clue, what are the goals of the Quest mission here? Okay, so the first and foremost is to fly the X-59 and show that we can make an airplane that has a quiet sonic boom. That's never been done, so this this will be history if this works. Um, But then the longer-term goal is to go out and fly the aircraft around the country over various communities and survey people's response to the sonic thump and gather enough data to send to regulatory agencies like the FAA and hopefully get them to change the law banning supersonic flight. Instead of making it a speed limit, we want to make it a noise limit. We want to find out what is a tolerable amount of noise that people can handle and people will accept and then get that to be the standard. Is so it, is there some obvious goal to sort of commercialize here, maybe bring something like the, the Concorde back over, like go from uh, New York to Los Angeles in like an hour or two? Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. It. Yeah. I mean, we want to cut, you know, travel times. If you look, you know, throughout history with airplanes, we were getting faster and faster and faster, you know, as we were trying to transport people, you know, and then all of a sudden we hit a stop there in the 70s. And that was because of the noise. So it wasn't because we didn't have the technology to necessarily drag people across the earth faster. So, you know, we want to overcome, you know, that hurdle so that, you know, you can get to grandma's house in half the time. You know, I think it was George Lucas who said uh, when he was making the prequels, history doesn't repeat, it rhymes. And I understand that one of you is from the hometown of Chuck Yeager, who broke the sound barrier in the X-1 Bell. What was that, 75 some odd years ago? Which, Which one of you gentlemen is that? Uh, well, I'm from the same state. We're not from the same hometown. Uh, and he, uh, so we're both hail from, you know, West Virginia. And, uh, you know, and it is interesting that, you know, the first X-plane is the X-1. Uh, we have one that sits out in front of where we work. There's a, you know, X-1 that sits on a pole out in front of, you know, the building where Clue and I work. So it's, it's really kind of cool to see, you know, the first X-plane. And now we're, you know, getting to fly, you know, the you know, 59th number, at least. I don't think it's actually the 59th X-plane. I'm pretty sure it's not actually. But, uh, and Clue and I have both had the pleasure of meeting General Yeager. You know, when we were in test pilot school, he was actually still like a, a, a part-time faculty member. And, you know, you'd walk through the halls and, you know, you know, walk down there with your report in your hand, look up and go, good morning, General Yeager. So that was always pretty cool. Very, so is X-plane just like code for NASA experimental jet? Is that where the X comes from? It's a it's a designation for experimental. Um, 
the Air Force actually has an office that owns the uh, the right to name X-planes. NASA had to apply to this office for an X designation, and uh, they came up with X-59, kind of the next in line, I guess. And, uh, and that's where we're at. I also have a note here that says one of you guys were in the 90s group, the Spin Doctors, but that's not the one that's saying Little Miss can't be wrong, is it? No, that's, that's me, Nils. Uh, that was, uh, it was a really uh, popular group at the time. And uh, as you go through test pilot school, that was the nickname for our class, uh, just because you do out of control flight and you do, you know, spins and that, uh, that kind of stuff. So uh, we decided to adopt their name. And so we were the spin doctors. I, I, I like the spin doctors out there. <laughs> so is it, how realistic was like, I know Top Gun Maverick wasn't the Air Force, but like how realistic was that, Nils? Was that kind of like the spin doctors? Uh, well, it, it's kind of interesting because all the pilots or test pilots that watch, you know, Top the Top Gun Maverick, you know, um, when we do flight test, it is very calculated. It is very, you know, it wouldn't be like, I'm going to take it up even because it's just the last flight of this airplane out to the end point. You know, that's a good way to get yourself killed. Uh, so, you know, everything we do, we have a huge control room. It's very calculated. You're always taking baby steps uh, because you need to learn from every little step you take and make sure that it matches, you know, the model and your predictions to make sure that you're not going somewhere that you shouldn't go. So when it comes to that, uh, you know, it the that part wasn't as realistic as you know we're like that's a little too cowboy you you'd pretty much get fired for sure if you did something you know along those lines which yeah that's a movie (laughs) you you got to keep it entertaining you got to keep the people watching oh exactly it's fun i mean don't get me wrong yeah it's a great movie i I, I don't don't want to knock the guys who made that at all (laughs) what's that clue I was going to say, uh, all the scenes were flown with actual aircraft. They, uh, they did not use, I mean, we've, we've heard from the, the pilots that actually flew that. Um, and yeah, they did not use computer graphics to, to make things up with that movie. So you never know. I, I knew, um, I, I was seeing this girl long ago. She thought gravity was filmed in space. I was like, nah, I, I think that might've been a, a green screen. De- decent Sandra Bullock movie, but I don't think they filmed that one up in space. Now, I have a couple of trivia questions for you guys. You actually answered a couple of mine already, so I'm going to skip those ones. But I don't have buzzers, so you guys can just raise your hand, and I'll pick the one whose hand is up first. We'll start with this one. The X-59's aircraft, I mean the X-59's engine, is from what type of aircraft? Is it an F-16 Fighting Falcon, a 777, an F-18 Hornet, or the Wright Brothers Glider? Well, we, I think we all know that. We got. Yeah, that, I think yeah. Nils was first. Yeah, I'm gonna go with the glider. Not, not really. Uh, it's the. Uh, it's the specifically. It's the EF and G Hornet, uh, and not the. You know the Super baby Hornet. Not, not that one. What, okay, here's another one for you guys. What will the X-59 be louder than? Fireworks, a balloon pop, a basketball bouncing, or snapping? Snapping. Sorry, didn't raise my hand. <laughs> it's all right. I'll give you that one. So it, it'll be less loud than a basketball bouncing? Is that is that where we're going with here? If you put I your ear so. down by the floor and somebody bounced a basketball next to you, yeah, it'll be quieter than that. So when they put this X-59, here's the next one. How many people can fly in the X, X-59? Zero. Um, probably not. We're talking to test pilots. One, two, or ten? We got Clue. Yeah. Just one, uh, one of us yeah. at a time. 
just yeah, we just, don't want anybody sitting on our lap. So <laughs> no, no, and but it's not a two seater. It's just it's just a one man or woman plane. What gives an X plane its designation? Is it the President of the United States, NASA's administrator, the Air Force, or the FAA? I think Clue already got that one, so oh, Clue, I'll let you got him get it. the credit for that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Clue had already, was, you know, he already kind of answered that one. The, the Air Force, so we should let him score that one because he scored it even before the. Question oh, are we keeping up. score here? We, uh, I, well, I not know, really. I, I hope yeah. somebody is. Okay. I mean, you're both winners. <laughs> I mean, today's a huge day for you. Um, oh, here's an interesting one, and I'm actually curious about this. How much minimum runway does the X-59 need to land? Is it 50 feet, 2,000 feet, 5,000 feet, or 10,000 feet? Yeah. Nils. I'm going to say as much as we can get. So. <laughs> as much as you can get. <laughs> you know, so I'm going to go with the 10,000, yeah. Does it does it take a bit to stop, Clue? Because it coming in at uh, that that sort of speed, what is typical? Like, what is typical for like an F sixteen? How much speed? How much uh, runway would you need? Uh, an F sixteen, you can easily get by with about eight thousand feet. Um, and yeah, the F or the X fifty nine is going going to be landing a little bit faster, probably fifteen to twenty knots faster than most fighters. Um, and it's very slick. It's a very slick design. There's no speed brakes or anything else. So once we land, it's just going to want to keep rolling. Um, so we're we're expecting to use most of the ten thousand feet that we're given. I think I think that you gentlemen tied. So I'm going to have to go with the tiebreaker here. Favorite uh-huh. space movie, and this is not multiple choice. This is just going to be my opinion. Who I agree with more. Favorite space movie. We'll start with you, Clue. Uh, space movie, huh? Probably two thousand and one. Space Odyssey. 2001 Space Odyssey, great choice. Hell, the evil AI, who knows? Maybe it's a, maybe it's a, a, a precursor to what we'll see in the future. What do you think, Nils? Uh, I'm just going to go with Star Wars. So, and yeah, hard not to, hard not to. You, you, can't go, you, know, it, you can't go wrong with that one, but yeah. Yeah, no, I like it too. You know, some people would think like maybe you guys would be turned off because it's more fantasy than than science or like realistic base. But I think like for so many of us, we're so young when we saw it. It's what inspired us to care about space in the first place. Well, and fantasy eventually drives reality many times. So, you know, what you can dream up. I mean, we got, you know, things on our wrist that, you know, allow us to communicate like Dick Tracy did, you know, in the comic books years ago. And who would ever thought we would have this kind of stuff? Would you say that that's a key component of most NASA people? You can't really be a realist. You've got to be a dreamer and highly motivated to push things forward. Uh, oh, absolutely. I think, yeah, yeah. I think you, you definitely, it, it's definitely a component of, you know, wanting to be a dreamer. I mean, even just to apply <laughs> to, to be an astronaut or a test pilot or thinking, hey, I, why, why not apply to NASA to be an engineer at NASA? Yeah. So in the long tail of this, as we look forward to as we look towards the future, we get past all this testing and stuff. How long will it take for someone to sign up for like a boarding pass on an X-59 or something using like the X-59 technology? Ah, so that's an interesting question. Um, if you go to nasa.gov forward slash quest, Q-U-E-S-S-T, there's information about signing up for a boarding pass on the X-59. Now, as we said, there's only one seat, so this is really a virtual flight, um, but everybody can have their name on a list that will be carried on the very first flight of the X-59 when that happens. Oh, wow. 
Very, very cool. Now, everyone can watch this today, too, right? NASA's an amazing YouTube channel. You can go on NASA's YouTube. You can go on uh, NASA Plus, the NASA website, and even the NASA app. It's all starting at 4 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. local time. Local time, where is this, where is this unveiling? It's uh, out here in Palmdale. It's about, you know, I don't know how far that way from my house. <laughs> so it's uh, by, you know, about three miles that way, I think. So, uh, but uh, Palmdale, California, where they're building it. Uh, so I think it's uh, one o'clock uh, Pacific time. But uh, yeah, so we're looking forward to that. Well, you guys, I, you, it's a big day. I know you're very excited about it. Thank you so much for giving us some great information on what's happening on the X-59. Thank you so much, NASA. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Thanks for stopping by, guys. If you have any more questions, you know, and, and want to watch us throughout the years, you know, as we're, you know, going, you know, through our whole mission all the way to the end, like Clue was talking about, that same website that he was talking about, that nasa.gov slash quest. And remember, quest is with two S's. It's not that we can't spell. We went for the whole supersonic thing. Uh, you can watch that, and they're updating it constantly, so you can see what, you know, what it is that we're doing. And uh, if you have your 3D printers, if you're a total geek like uh, Clue and I, you can even print yourself a model of the X-59. So a lot of resources there. Guys, thank you so much. Ad Astra, thanks for coming on the show today. Have a great weekend and enjoy the event today. And everyone tune in at 4 o'clock Eastern. Thank you for having us. Take care. Thanks a lot. All right, All right everybody. Meanwhile. When I think of the future, I think of this. These are the Moonwalker X. They're not skates, but they are shoes with wheels. Okay, they definitely feel heavier. There's definitely something on my feet. I'm definitely moving faster. Three times faster, the company Swift tells me. They limit to seven miles per hour, which apparently is jogging speed of a normal person. And a full battery will get you one hour of walking. It'll take one hour to recharge to full as well. The shoes talk to each other via Bluetooth, and there's electric motors in both of them. The toe box bends to mimic how our feet walk. And there's 10 wheels on the first generation, but only six on the second generation, which weighs three pounds. Currently, Gen 1 is available for $1,400, but Gen 2 will be coming out in summer 2024, or also $1,400. While these are designed for factory or warehouse workers who have what? to walk a lot to do their job, you can totally imagine a set of these in the New York City subway. I mean, you've got to make those transfers. Good. I mean, good luck selling those into warehouses, putting roller skates on warehouses. I'm not sure how bright of an idea that is or if OSHA would even care. By the way, before our next guest, we have a couple of headlines to get to. Some big stories have come across the wire. One of them is that GXO has shut down a Memphis facility. They're laying off 211 workers over there. Noe Mahoney, he reports this whole article is on FreightWaves.com. Check it out. He said contract logistics provider GXO Logistics announced Wednesday it plans to close its distribution center in Memphis, Tennessee. The layoffs are going to begin March 6th. And the facility is going to shut down by April 27th. Here's what's interesting, though. This particular location at 4795 Imagination Drive in Memphis, it's listed as a Disney distribution center. Now, those NASA guys, Nil said his favorite movie was Star Wars. You know, it used to be my kids, too, until a couple of the recent ones. And we used to buy a lot of Star Wars figures. And then a movie called The Last Jedi came out. And we stopped buying Star Wars figures. So I don't know if that place is full of, like, Rose Ticos, but I know I'm not alone. Hasbro, Disney, Star Wars, you gotta, you got to figure fix that line of toys. 
Uh, Maersk, by the way, we're talking about canals, and Sal's going to be on in just a little bit. We'll be talking about the Suez and the Red Sea. But Maersk is going to use freight rail to circumvent the Panama Canal amid this drought. Global trade, a lot of issues going on. AP Muller Maersk has announced it will be using a freight railroad to bypass the drought-stricken Panama Canal as low water levels have forced authorities to limit the number of large ships that go through there. There's a thing called the Panama Canal Railway. It's a 47-mile railroad running adjacent to a canal that connects the Atlantic to the Pacific Oceans. Maersk said vessels that use the Panama Canal will now use a land bridge, creating two separate rail loops, one for cargo, one headed for the Atlantic, and another for the Pacific. And then, of course, one more for here, a little bad news. Digital brokerage Uber Freight has slashed some more jobs. You got Uber Freight there. Clarissa Haas reports logistics leader Uber Freight confirmed Tuesday that it was forced to cut another a number of jobs in order to align with its continued commitment to sustainable growth. A source familiar with the layoffs said 40 to 50 jobs were cut Monday. However, there was a big faux pas that happened here. It, was, it really sucked for the workers. They got an automated message earlier in the day that they were all fired and management said this is, a, this is according to someone who worked there. They said that they sent this out. Everyone was freaking out. Management said, oh, nothing to worry about. And then there was a Zoom call later in the day, one-on-one calls where these people were were let go. This anonymous employee says HR screwed up and sent out separation agreements. Everyone's in panic mode, but the company kept telling us it was just an error in the system. Hours later, we received counter advice to join a Zoom call about 10 minutes before we were let go. Not cool. Hey, we're going to learn about horse transport really quick. I have five quick questions for freight broker Kai, our anonymous broker. He doesn't want everyone uh, out in the world to know he's a zinner. Freight broker guy, what is up, my man? Hello, freight broker guy. He's very anonymous. I can't even hear him. Let's go to forget Freight Broker Guy. We'll, we'll put him on at the end if he, if he figures that out. His sonic boom was going left and right. Let's bring up Sal because this is a huge topic. I got to get with, with Sal anyway. Sal, anyway. I'm, I'm getting doubled over here. I'm getting doubled over here. <laughs> What's up, Sal? You never Sal? get enough, Dooner. I never get enough. There's, you know, there's always something in, in Mission Control and in the life of a live podcaster, Sal. Oh, I, I understand entirely. I understand completely. Now, so big, big, big topic came up. Now, I already booked you to come on the show because there's so much that's been happening in the Red Sea. But last night, uh, well, today, uh, Yemen time, there was a bunch of U.S. strikes against the Hothi. I'd be like 70-plus strikes, maybe five deaths, something like that. Sal, what is going on with shipping? Dooner, the last time I was on, I was wearing a camel head. It was the Christmas. And today's show is going to be crazier than that because of what is happening Right now, we're trying to keep track of it. What you saw last night was a series of strikes by the United States and the United Kingdom. It's twofold reason. Number one, the U.N. Security Council came out and gave basically they they, they spanked Yemen for the for the 10th time. And that gives them a little bit of coverage. But the biggest thing was on January 9th, the U.S. and the U.K. ran a series of convoys through, including four U.S. ships. And it was the most concentrated attack yet against commercial shipping. This has been going on since November 19th when the Houthi grabbed the Galaxy Leader in that dramatic helicopter attack. Since then, they have been attacking ships ostensibly connected to Israel, but that's not true. They've been hitting any ship they really want to. And I guess after the 27th attack, that was enough. The U.S. and the U.K. have struck. The problem is I'm not exactly sure this is going to open up the Red Sea. We may actually wind up seeing more diversions, including tankers now 
start avoiding this area. And it could have a actually a negative impact on the commercial side. You know, it's, it, leading up to this, there was a lot of debate online about what the U.S. presence, U.S. force, U.S. retaliation. What do we do? I mean, one of the best ways to get like attacked in the world is to attack tankers or trade. That is global money. Uh, nobody is happy about ships getting attacked. But now that Biden has done that attack, there's been a lot of critics there. John Conrad wrote, they fired on a U.S. merchant ship. I'm not happy with this outcome, but it's not illegal to strike back when ballistic missiles are fired on unarmed ships. This is a rules of engagement debate, not a war debate. Debate. If Biden lands troops, that's a different story. Is are we doing the right response right now? Where does this put us? Well, we've been doing a very defensive stance. We've been very proactive, not very reactive. And one of the things that the U.S. has done, along with its allies, was try to build this kind of naval wall between Yemen and commercial shipping. And the problem is, if you're sitting there as a gatekeeper and you're trying to skeet shoot drones and missiles coming overhead. You know, the Navy is great at this. They're really good at it, but they don't have a 100% success rate. And sooner or later, we're going to see ships hit. And unfortunately, what the people who are driving, whether or not the ships go through the Red Sea, not so much the Houthi, it's the insurance companies. Container ships diverted around because a container ship's cargo is in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And when you start escalating war risk insurance, it gets really expensive. Tankers are a little bit lower. They're maybe in tens of millions of dollars. But right now, the question becomes, will the strikes make it safer for ships to go through? It's not a military judgment. It's an insurance and commercial judgment. We're already seeing this massive diversion. 30% of the ships that normally go through the Bab el-Mandab, this is that strait between Djibouti and Yemen, 19,000 ships a day, or 19,000 ships a year, excuse me, are now going a different route. That's an extra million dollars at least in transit costs for those ships to go down. And you're seeing it in the escalation of the freight rates right now, not to mention Egypt is losing a half a million dollars for every ship not going through. 20 ships a day not going through, that's $10 million. They, they're standing to lose 2 to $3 billion a year right now. You know, and that's that's a huge issue. And there's a lot of when you're talking about global trade, you're talking about a lot of players. It's not just the U.S. or England or the Netherlands or or these places. You're also talking China. You're talking India. You're talking Germany. You're talking a lot of really big, heavy hitters who can retaliate against you. Analyst Greg Bruce says the Hothis are a little reckless as far as taking risks, but I think they know well enough not to go after Chinese ships because this would complicate Iran's relationship with China. The Hothis probably want a relationship with China. Do you agree? Because there's VSAs, I mean, if you attack like a Maersk vessel, there couldn't be freight on there that's originated from China or people are partnered with China or ordered stuff via China. Well, China is exerting a, a lot of power behind the scenes. And this is the thing we're not exactly see seeing. I should note that there have been some Chinese ships hit the o uh, the number nine, which is an OOCL ship, uh, Maersk Gibraltar, which is actually owned by a Chinese company flagged in Hong Kong was hit. But what we're seeing right now is a lot of companies are having their ships on their AIS. This is their automated information uh, identification system. Say, you know, we're Chinese owned or we have Chinese crew on board or, you know, they're, they're flying the Hong Kong or Chinese flag. And, you know, th this is an interesting geopolitical issue. We, we don't know what role the Chinese are playing behind the scenes with the Houthi. And if all of a sudden it appears it's safer to be under the, the protection of China just by sitting there and putting it on your AIS transponder when the U.S. Navy and the Royal Navy are actually shooting missiles, you know, that's an interesting change in the geopolitics. Because remember, 
we're seeing a lot of other instability in that region too. We've had Somali pirate attacks where one ship has been grabbed. Uh, two other ships were attempted to be grabbed. Uh, we have Iran that attacked two different ships on, on separate occasions. And then a seizure just the other day of a ship coming out of Kuwait, which is arguably a different issue. But we're definitely seeing the instability in the region, which means for all of us, once you start seeing risk added to the transportation of freight, you know as well as I do, whether it's trucking, rail, air, or, or sea, it gets expensive for the shipper, and it's going to get expensive for the consumer. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned uh, insurance, too. That's a, It's not just freight rates that have gone up. It's insurance rates moving goods through there. We have a statement here from the president of Yemen. He says, we say to our brothers in Palestine and our people in Gaza that our blood is not more precious than your blood. And we are clear of conscience that we are actually participating with you and that Palestine is not being bombed alone. We affirm that Palestine after today will not be in the battle alone. How long is this conflict going to go on for? I mean, the, the, the Yemen Houthi, they fought conflicts for very long periods of time before. Well, that, that's the issue you're looking at here, because the, the reason for the Houthi to do this has to go back to Israel and Hamas and Gaza. And I did a podcast yesterday where I joked, you know, the way you solve this is Mideast peace, and that's not happening anytime soon. And so what kind of leverage do you have against the Houthi? There was a story the other day that the container liners and shipping liners were, were going to bribe the Houthi. They were going to pay them off. I don't think you could bribe it and pay off the Houthi. They, they, are, they are political. They're religious. They are ex exercising their, their control. But who you can pay off and who you can kind of get rid of uh, to fix this problem is Iran and China and Russia, those who have power over the Houthi. And I think we need to be looking at this because right now, as long as Israel is in Gaza and you have that incident happening down there, and again, it's horrific. It's horrific of what the Hamas did to Israel. It's horrific, the bombing that's going on in Gaza right now. And I'm not taking sides by any means. But the Houthis see this as their ability to reach out and impact the world. And I got to say, for a non-state player, again, Houthi are not the government. They're a faction in a three-way civil war in Yemen. They're using fairly rudimentary weapons along with some sophisticated ones, and they've been able to impact 12% of the world trade and actually make the major container liners of the world divert their ships, and they're going to cost billions, billions of dollars in the economy of the globe because they're supporting this. It really demonstrates how much a small player can actually influence global trade right now if you're astride a, a key maritime choke point. Yeah, and look, this is from before the strikes. Rachel published an article about us taking calm seas for granted in her most recent modes. And one of the art one of the quotes in there is rates from Asia to North America have popped by 75% over the last month, according to Flexport. And the firm expect rates to increase by an additional 50 to 100% in the second half of January. Meanwhile, in Asian Europe, rates are up over 200%. Are, are we getting back to $20,000? You, if you looked at what Drury just put out, they said rates going from Asia into the Mediterranean are up 400%. Remember, we've got not one issue going on, but multiple issues. You've got the Panama Canal, which you were just talking about with Maersk going through. We've got low water in the Panama Canal, which means two-thirds of the ships are just getting through the Panama Canal. But you've got to offload part of the Neo-Panamax ship. This is why Maersk is putting those containers on the rail so that they can offload part of the ship, get through the canal, and get to the other side and pack those containers back on board. But remember, just before this all started, the Alliance and the Ocean Alliance, two of the three big uh, alliances in global shipping, announced we're not going to go through the Panama Canal. We're going to go through the Suez Canal. 
So 30% of those containers that are going to Europe gets transloaded and shipped over to the United States. It's why you're seeing the rates between Asia and New York pop across the Atlantic. It's why you're seeing the rates begin to climb going between Asia and the East and Gulf Coast via the Panama Canal. It's also why you're going to start seeing a wave of ships probably start heading back to LA and Long Beach. And I hope they fixed everything because if a wave comes in, we may see the same thing. I don't think we're going to get to the $20,000, $25,000 spot rate we saw. But this last week, we saw the fastest growth in freight rate ever recorded in a single week. Well, Sal, shippers have to be because like one big component of the supply chain crisis during the pandemic, it, you know, rates were a big thing, but so was time, time to getting inventory in. And I know a lot of that had to do with congestion at the ports and everything, but we're talking about time already being extended. It's taking much longer to ship uh, goods than it used to. And now um, it's like, you know, 15 days. But as this extends, that timeline is going to go out longer and longer. Is this going to panic shippers into buying more and more goods to make sure that they have inventory in place? So you're seeing the disruptions hitting Europe first. So yeah. because of the diversions around, it's going to start hitting the European ports. And you're going to see the backlog because the schedules that have been in place assumed a Suez Canal transit. So now you're going to get those backlogs. And you're going to have to put more ships. Now, containers are lucky for two reasons. Number one, Q1, it's before the Chinese New Year. It's post uh, the uh, Christmas holiday. So this tends to be the down period. So there is capacity out there. Plus, number two, the container liners have invested and bought in container ships like crazy. So all that, that, that the ships that they were bought when they were drunk with the COVID cash is now being floated out and put on service. So there's excess capacity to absorb this. The problem you're going to get is obviously that this is going to hit in waves. It's going to hit Europe first. It's going to hit the back end of Asia next because the return of empty containers is going to be displaced because you're not going through the Suez. You got to go around Africa and the arrival of goods coming to the United States. And shippers are going to start to want to, first of all, they're seeing those rates go up. And if they don't have those long term rates locked in, they're going to start jumping at these spot rates where they're at. And you're going to see people start doubling up. Where we saw the problem during COVID, remember, was that people started shipping more on the capacity that was out there. You had the COVID economy, and then you had the kind of return from COVID, which we never knew when it was going to happen. So they, they wound up shipping additional goods. And if that starts happening, then you could see a repeat of what we saw in COVID if all of a sudden we start overloading the container system. And because what happens is that that rolls out into the ports. And, you know, you had on uh, the, the discussion the other day about the trucks in and out of L.A. and Long Beach. Are we better able to do drayage out of L.A. and Long Beach than we were two, three years ago? And I think the answer is no. No, we're, we may be even I mean, they're not really enforcing that. It's, it's, it's on the books. People are supposed to be compliant. But I mean, as the Harbor Trucking Association said, they can enforce that. They can gate you out. And if that happens, that could cause a really big crisis at the port. It, it all feels very ominous. But you tweeted that not everybody is listening to this. Your tweet says ships warned to avoid Red Sea after airstrikes. OK, that's not happening. Well, traffic is down 30 percent. And you can see that container ships over 4000 TUs are largely bypassing the Red Sea. There's still a lot of traffic going through. What's happening here, Sal? Right. So you're still seeing about 70 percent of that traffic going through. Now, remember, what you're seeing there is a range of ships. We're seeing a, a batch of smaller container ships going in, which are, tend to be regional. They're not really being targeted. We're seeing some bulk carriers going through, but we're also seeing a lot of fuel ships going through. For example, a lot of Russian tankers going through. These are ships carrying Russian oil. 
the big concern now has to be if you're in Europe heading into wintertime is what happens if all of a sudden oil starts getting displaced in energy. Remember, because of Russia, Ukraine, again, we're bringing another uh, uh, black swan event in here. Because of Russia, Ukraine, there's no longer the import of liquefied natural gas and oil and diesel from Russia into Europe. So what the Russians have done is adapted the black fleet, uh, the dark fleet. They're sending oil through the Suez Canal. It's heading to the Middle East, to India, to China to be refined and shipped back. Well, we just saw that Scorpio tankers announced that their clean product tankers, their diesel tankers, are going to start taking those long routes around Africa. And the horror, the, 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 the disaster of all times would be if you hit a liquefied natural gas carrier or liquefied petroleum gas carrier, if they can't come from Qatar in the Persian Gulf or from Western Australia through the Suez Canal, they got to route around Africa. Remember, the whole reason we got super tankers, the big, massive two to three million barrel tankers, is because the Suez Canal closed for eight years from 1967 to 1975. Well, you're seeing a partial closure right now. But what we may see is more ships. And, and while ships are going through, we're still getting that 70% traffic through. If it starts going down further, this is going to impact different sectors. And remember, we don't have an excess amount of tankers like we do in containers. There's a very finite amount of tankers out there. And if you're going to stretch them over a longer distance, we may see shortages and the cost to transport oil and liquefied, liquefied natural gas, petroleum gas, and uh, refined products is going to go up. Sal, there's 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 war all over the place. There's conflict going on all over the place in 2024. Will this evolve into like oh, there's a number of nations like going after the Houthi with these airstrikes. Is this going to evolve into a world war? Or does it stay contained as a, as a proxy battle that's just over the region? Well, I, I think you're looking at proxy battles right now. And I think one of the reasons that you saw, for example, the U.S. and the U.K. stage these strikes is a lot of nations don't want to get attached to the Israeli Gaza conflict. And, you know, we we, saw, we had a press conference with the commander, the admiral from the U.S. Fifth Fleet, the combined maritime force, Vice Admiral Brad Cooper. And Admiral Cooper made clear distinction between the ships that were doing the escort mission and those doing the strike. The big thing I'm watching to see right now is do some of the nations who announced that they were going to contribute naval forces to protection in the Red Sea back out now because of the strikes? Uh, you need those naval forces down there to provide an air of protection to provide ships. If not, this falls on the United States and the British to do. And they just don't have the depth of assets to be covering all the hotspots in the world right now. And I, I think that's the danger you see is we're seeing so many black swan events that all the, you know, it's hard to cover them all. And if you're shipping, if you're, if you're hauling cargo right now and you're moving freight right now and you're going to your risk analysis people and you're trying to figure out what's the next thing coming, who knows? Because I, nobody had Houthi on their bingo card interdicting 11% of the world trade. Everybody knew the Houthi were there. They knew what they were capable of, but they've been fairly minor attacks. The fact that they amped it up to this level is, is a whole new level. And again, if the Houthi can do that in the Bab el-Mandab, then other groups can do it in other maritime choke points around the world. Now, are, are, they, are the Houthi checking marine traffic? Because Captain Singh tweeted, Singapore container ship Kota Hakim crosses the Red Sea with the Vestal destination as VSL No Link Israel. 
Oh yeah, I, I think they're they are getting. There's a lot of intelligence being done. The Houthi are are using AIS. I know that because when they when they attacked the OCL, uh, I mean the uh, number nine, which is an OCL ship, initially it was actually listed as another operator, one that they had a problem with. So they are using AIS, and what we're seeing is a mixed bag of how AIS is used. For example, on the January 9th battle, there were four U.S. flag ships in the Red Sea. One of those four vessels had been sitting there with its AIS on for over a week. And the minute it turned off its AIS, it was pretty clear where it went. You know, it was going to come southward. Uh, you also had an Iranian vessel, a vessel that had been there for years, actually, that got underway and then patrolled right off the area where the strikes happened. That tells me that that ship either really wanted to watch a, a show of missiles or it was per perhaps providing intelligence. So yeah, the, the Houthi are gathering intelligence. They're probably getting it not just from open source information, but also probably from the Iranians who have a major shipping line. You know, Entech is a, is a big, huge shipping line for Iran. They, they ship oil all over the world. So they have the depth of knowledge to provide this intel. So again, we're in an information age here where the Houthi are using intelligence on their side. I asked our friend John Conrad this question, and I'm going to ask you because I wanted your opinion. You guys don't always agree. Sometimes you have some heated battles. Will this usher in a new era of piracy? I, I think you got to be careful about the, the phrase piracy because we use piracy in kind of in two ways. One is, you know, it's the private privateer. It's the, it's the person who's out, the criminal, basically, who's out robbing for his own personal need. But what you're seeing more is privateer. John and I went to SUNY Maritime. We're the home of the privateers. Privateers are state-sponsored pirates. And, you know, in many ways, the Houthi are not a national government. They're, they're kind of a, you know, it's a three-way civil war going on. And so they're operating more like a privateer in some ways because they say that they're a state and that's how they're operating. The Somali piracy going on right now, the capture of the ship, the Ruan, for example, that isn't the Somali piracy we saw of the 2000s and the 2010s. This is a different style of piracy because we know this because the ships are not being uh, held for hostage. There's been no ransom. So that tells me that they're using this different technology. And also piracy was something that could be handled, this small boat piracy. It's where you saw the armed guards going on board. It's where you saw the use of razor wire and the, and the fire hoses you have there. No private detachment, armed security detachment, can stop a ballistic cruise missile coming at you. Matter of fact, some of the navies can't stop it. So we're definitely seeing this escalate from piracy to, to state-sponsored privateering, I think. Sal, this, is, this has been too heavy. It's a Friday. We need a little levity. <laughs> I got to ask you, F3 is coming up in November. Do you think we can get myself, you, John, uh, Conrad, and uh, Ross Kennedy in some of these little boats? Can we do a little regatta on the Tennessee River over here? You got, you got the, yeah. I, listen, listen, I missed the last F3, unfortunately, due to a family thing. So I'd love to be out there. I think us in the Tennessee doing this would be fantastic. And let me be clear. John Conrad doesn't know what he's talking about. He drove, he drove big oil rigs. I drove big ships. He doesn't know what he's doing. We got to get Rachel out there too, because my goal in life is to convince Rachel Premack that big boats, you got to love big boats. Now, are, are these real? Do they really train? Do they really train boat pilots on these little boats? Yeah, up, up at uh, Mass Maritime and actually at a school up in uh, Switzerland, up in a lake, uh, the ships act, uh, those ships are weighted and, and configured so that you can actually do. This is before you had simulators and, and all the high tech 
stuff. This is the way you would do it. And it actually is a great simulator because you have to learn how to maneuver ships at very low speeds with very little power on. And in particular, how ships react in very narrow waterways, like you see there with the two ships passing. Ships will react in a very uh, way. And so you would have the uh, pilots sitting there in the ship and an instructor behind them. And the ships would be weighted like normal container ships. Wind would affect them. Current would affect them. It's a, actually a really good way. It's it's very much like a uh, practice driving that the police do. And, and you know, in those closed, uh, closed uh, uh, areas that they practice on. Well, Sal, so it's fair to me. What if we also roll in as part of this? It'll be like a, a dicathlon or a bicathlon or something. Some little tiny trucks. How do you think you do here? Oh man, we we can we can we can bring the trucks in. We can bring the little planes in so that Craig feels at home. I'm, I'm all for this. We can we can turn F3 into. We can get all the different modes of transportation. We can get road. We can get rail. We can get air, and we can get sea. And of course, everyone will love to see the best. So we are out of time. You have an amazing YouTube channel. You've probably got your uh, your your gold play button, or at least your platinum one by now. How do people go find it? But it's a silver one. I did get it, and I appreciate that. Head on over to YouTube, What's Going On With Shipping. Follow me over on Twitter, where I follow Dooner at Macagliano uh, S. And at all times, you can always find me here working at Campbell University. Go, go Hums. Thank you so much. We'll keep you uh, afloat of what's going on with shipping. There's no show on Monday. We will be back Friday. Sal, you have a great week, and you can find me at Timothy Dooner on Twitter, S-D-O-O-N-E-R. You can find the show at FW What The Truck. Take care. Don't be a stranger. Good luck, NASA. <laughs>